Let's open up to First uh, Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 13 this evening. Chapter 13 is going to be really the beginning of the end uh, for Saul. You remember Saul was Israel's first king. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, had decided that they wanted to be like all the nations around them. And instead of just having God rule over them, which he had been doing for hundreds of years, from the time that God brought them out of Egypt through the desert wanderings, 40 years, and then he brings them into the land under Joshua, and then they settle the land. And for at least 400 years, we had the time of the judges, and now we have... Samuel, uh, as, a, as an older man now, and he's, he's basically handing off the baton. He's really Israel's last judge. And Saul, who was the tallest man in Israel, the Bible tells us, head and shoulders taller than anybody, handsome fellow. And the people of Israel, they wanted a man like that. They wanted a leader who was tall and handsome. And really nothing has changed in, in, in today's society. When people think of a leader, they always are thinking of you know, the guy who can speak the best, the guy who's the tallest, the guy or gal who's the prettiest or that most handsome, whatever it is. And none of those things really qualify a leader, do they? Because many people can be tall, they can be handsome, they can even speak well, but that doesn't give them necessarily a leadership quality. And those aren't really necessarily leadership qualities at all. God is the one who makes leaders. And he gave them the desire of their heart. And he didn't do that... Um, because he was happy with their choice. You know, there comes a point when God, when we fight against him long enough, when we say we want this, we want this, and we, we, we're so adamant and that we want something, whatever it may be, even if it's against what God's law says, even if it's against the, what, the, what, the, what the Lord wants for our lives, there comes a point where God may allow you what you want. And I've experienced this in my own life. I've wanted something so bad. I wanted something so bad. And even before I knew Christ. And I wanted something so bad. And God gave it to me to teach me a lesson because it wasn't good for me. He knew what was best for me. I did not know what's best for me. Does anybody really know what's best for them personally? I don't always know. As I become closer to the Lord and as I know his word better, I'm coming into more of an alignment with his will, but I still got a long way to go. And I think you'd probably say the same. And so God wants to conform us to his image, but they wanted a king. And so God gave them a king and it didn't turn out so well. They would have been better off just doing what they've always been doing and allowing God to guide and direct them. But if you remember in chapter 12, we saw that they went... Um, uh, just on the heels of this victory that they had with the Ammonites, with their new king, Saul, they had this great victory. They were so excited. Samuel says, let's go to Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom there. And so they go to this place and it's a, a great time of rejoicing. Saul's their first king, the nation's first king. They had a great victory over the Ammonites. And then it says that, and at that time, they were going to coronate Saul again. He'd actually been coronated once before, but now they were going to crown him king now after this victory. And you recall, in the process of doing that, Samuel, as an old man now, is basically going to hand the baton off to Saul. And he warns them, and he asks them, uh, in front of all the nation, he says, Have I, Samuel speaking, speaking to the nation, and Saul is there, 
He says, have I defrauded anybody in anything? Have I done anything wrong? Do I owe anybody anything? Is there anything that you have against me? Speak now or forever hold your peace in a sense. That's really what he's doing. And certainly nobody comes back and says anything because Samuel was a a fantastic leader. He was a wonderful man of God, a faithful man. But then they coronate Saul. And if you recall, Samuel doesn't let them off the hook easily because as they're coronating Saul, Samuel's also reminding the nation, what you've done in asking for a king is evil. And think of how awkward that must have been for Saul as he's standing there, this man who's taller than everybody in Israel, and Samuel's addressing the nation and saying, what you did in asking for a king is evil. Because you weren't content with what God wanted for you. You wanted a king. And here's your king before you. Notice him. Here he is. And that's exactly what happened. And God sent thunder and rain, if you recall. A very unusual time of year for that to happen. And God sent it. And it was a testimony to them that what they did was evil. And the people, for a short time, understood that they had done evil and they repented of their, or at least they were sorry for asking for themselves a king. But we'll see that these tears that they had were really crocodile tears. Crocodile tears is basically, basically earthly sorrow. Earthly sorrow is when you do something wrong and you get caught or you get busted and you're feeling sorrowful for a season, but then you go right back to the vomit again, like a dog returning to its vomit. You, you get to the point where, and, and that's what crocodile's tears are. That's what earthly sorrow is. But godly sorrow is a true repentance. A true repentance is when I see something and God tells me that what I'm doing is wrong and it's not good for me. And I say, Lord, you're right. Forgive me. And I am going, and I need your help to do this, Lord, but I want to turn from this thing. That's what repentance is. And that's godly sorrow. When you turn away from something, it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you've you made a commitment. You've turned an about face and you're going the opposite direction from where you're going. And see, that's what God wants us to do as Christians too. We need to repent of our sin. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to him. And in doing so, that is a repentance because you're turning away from the world, from your own ways to God's ways. And let me tell you something, God's ways are much better than your ways could ever be. I know this because I lived 24 years in my own, wanting to do my own thing and having my own uh, path carved out for me. I wanted to be a classical guitarist and I was going to travel all around the world. That was, what I, that was my goal. And I was on my way. And God intervened in my life and I'm so glad because I'm more blessed and fulfilled now than I've ever been. And I could have never have designed what he's doing in my life right now. I could have never have seen it in a million years. And see, that's just how good God is. He has a way of getting you from where you're at and bring you to the place where he wants you to be, the very place that he's created for you to be. And to me, that's the most wonderful thing about God, is he wants to bring you into the fullness of his blessing. And the only way that that can occur is by you surrendering your life to him. And when you do that, it's such a wonderful charge because, you know, now you're surrendering your life to the one who created you, who knew you before time began. Didn't he say that to Jeremiah? Didn't he say to Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. That means that before he was even conceived in the womb, God had a plan for this man's life. To me, that's fabulous. That's marvelous. And so that's really where Saul 
is right now is he's this king who's a little bit uh, a little sheepish because of he knows that his kingship is really not the best, but God is going to allow it and he's going to give the people it and he's going to give Saul to him. And so they make the best of it. And, and really, that's where we ended in, in chapter 12. And so let's read chapter 13, and we'll get into it. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, And the Philistines heard it, and then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as, uh, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. And so Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned on the road to Ophrah and the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road of Beth, uh, to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, 
but there were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to, went out to the pass of Michmash. So this is a, an interesting uh, an account. And remember, this is history. This is not just a story in a book like David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not, a, it's not just a story. It's important to remember that as we read the Bible, that this is history. And it's really good history. In fact, as, as archaeologists dig up things all around the, uh, the Middle East, it's confirming things that were previously unknown. And the Bible had told us in advance that these cities, these men, were over these cities, and everyone's scratching their head going, we have no evidence of this. And then they find something under a rock, and they look at it, and there's an inscription in Hebrew <laughs> that a certain king lived at a certain time in a certain place. And that happens all the time. And so archaeology doesn't confirm the Bible. The Bible just confirms what they find. But the Bible is true. Amen? And that's the way you need to think of it. It is the Word of God. So let's look back at verse 1 here because there's a, a lot of interesting things here. If we had to put a title on this evening's message or on this chapter, it would be, for me anyway, it would be the importance of obedience. The importance of obedience. It's important for us to be obedient. Because how can we say we love God if, we don't be, if we're not obedient to him? I can tell, you know, my daughter can tell me that she loves me, but if everything I tell her, she does the exact opposite. She's proving that she really doesn't respect me, and thus she doesn't really love me. But when I tell her to do something, and she does it, she's proving that she respects me, that she loves me. And that's the way relationships work, even between husband and wife. We love each other. We do those things for each other. We help each other. But notice, in verse 1 again, it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. This, uh, this first verse is kind of difficult because evidently there have been some textual problems with this in the Hebrew. Um, uh, but it could be read like this. And this is just one of, one of a handful of things in the Bible, and, and, it, and it doesn't really have anything to do with doctrine at all. It's just um, uh, could have been a scribal... Um, mishap or something that wasn't clear in those old manuscripts that were copied. And believe me, if you understood the way that the Jews copied old manuscripts, every one of us would be floored if you understood the meticulous way in which they copied those original scrolls that were, that were that brought down. I mean, there's basically, they're basically flawless. I mean, they really are. The original scrolls were flawless, but even in the copies, they spent such great deal. I mean, there's books written about this. It's fantastic how they, it's not just me sitting down with a, a little a light and, and, and transcribing stuff. Uh, so if you ever get into that, check it out, because it's really fascinating how they do it. But there, there's just a problem here, and it's a little difficult for us, but it could be read like this. Saul was one and 40 years old, or 41 years old, when he began to reign, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, then Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. It could read like that, it, it, because it, it doesn't make a, a great deal of sense the way it's written there. Um, we know that um, Paul, the apostle in Acts chapter 13, when he was in the, in the synagogue in Antioch, speaking of Saul, he, he said this in, in verse 20 of Acts, uh, Acts 13. He said, after that God had given them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they asked for a king, and so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So we know that Saul reigned for 40 years. 
And so the NIV actually has this uh, translation of that verse, and then we'll move on here. It's just, I, I think in another version, uh, which is on a different set of manuscripts, it makes it a little clearer, this specific verse. Because the NIV uh, gives this very first verse. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over 42 years, or 40 years approximately. Okay, so um, we'll just leave it at that. So, um, it's a very interesting thing. But notice in verse 2 and back in our text, it says, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with his son, Jonathan, uh, in their hometown of Gabeah in Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. So Saul evidently, even though he had access to a great number of people for his military, he chose, at least for this period of time, to have a group of men around him wherever he went. So he'd have 2,000 with him, and then uh, Jonathan, his son, would have 1,000 with him. And because as, as time went on, the Philistines were starting to raise up and starting to harass them, and so they needed to be on the fly. They needed to be ready to engage in battle at any moment, and you really can't do that with a couple hundred thousand people. <laughs> but you can do that easily, more easily, with a couple thousand. And so this place called Michmash is approximately four miles uh, northeast of where Saul's hometown was of Gabeah, or it could be seven miles northeast of Jerusalem, either way you want to look at it. But it says here that uh, a thousand were with Jonathan, his son, in Gabeah of Benjamin. And this is the first mention of Jonathan's name, of Jonathan, Saul's son, in the scripture. And his name means the Lord has given. And, and Jonathan was a really wonderful young man. I think Jonathan would have made a much better king than Saul, his father, because Jonathan was full of faith. He believed in God. He believed that God was going to deliver them from the Philistines, and he acted in faith. And we're going to see that in the next chapter next week. And so, uh, Jonathan, what a wonderful young man. And it says in verse 3 here, it says, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Underline that, because in the very next verse, you're going to hear that the people thought that Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Underline that in verse 3 and in verse 4. In verse 3, it says, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. But in the next verse, it says that Saul did. But really, his father got the, 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 the kudos for it. And that's probably okay because he is the king after all. But it was really Jonathan who had the faith to go up against him. Remember when David, we're going to see later, when David went up against Goliath. David, just a young teenager, and Saul was this you know, seasoned veteran at that time, much taller than everybody, he's shaking in his boots with the Philistines and Goliath standing there in a the field accusing and blaspheming the, the children of Israel. And David says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Let me at him. <laughs> and Saul is like, I don't know, I don't know. Try my armor on, maybe it'll fit you. And David's like, I can't, I, I and so Jonathan was the one who really had the faith. He had more faith than his father. And notice it says that Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And they, then, then Saul, after he found out, he blew the trumpet through all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. So people know there's a certain noise that they can make on the shofars that will alert everybody. And, and, and they, can, they probably had some system down where they would alert each other. And, and everybody knew that Saul had uh, done something, even though it was his son. 
And this place called Geba is literally in the center between where Saul was stationed in Michmash and where his other, when, and where Jonathan, his son, was located. Geba was right in the center. And it's interesting that it's Jonathan that went out first. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that especially next week. So in verse 4 it says, Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines. Underline that. It's different from verse 3. And that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So now he's calling together everybody because the one thing about the Philistines is they were a very formidable foe. They were expert in iron. They had chariots. They had iron tools and swords, and they outnumbered in power the, the, the Israelites. And so when Saul sees this, he sends out the command for everybody to gather again at Gilgal. And notice um, uh, that this was the very place where they celebrated and where Saul was coronated. The very place at Gilgal. Remember that first battle that they had with the Ammonites? And then they go to Gilgal and they crown Saul. And now they're all excited. He goes back to that same place and gathers everybody together. Maybe hoping that another great victory will come about. Hoping. So verse 5, so then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. And it says here 30,000 chariots, but um, it's very likely that it's 3,000. 3,000 instead of 30,000. Um, and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And so now they've got these 3,000 chariots of iron, 6,000 horsemen, and the Israelites weren't even supposed to be on horseback. So now you've got these chariots that are, that are pulled by horses, and then you've got separate horsemen, and then you've got people on their feet. And so now they're in real trouble from their perspective. But isn't it true that whenever all the odds are against you, that's when God loves to show up? That's when he loves to get the glory because if your heart is single toward him and you put your faith and trust in him, believe me, there is nothing that the enemy can do to you. There is nothing that the enemy can do to his people if they are walking in faith and, and holy impurity before him. God will see to it that they are taken care of. And he shows it throughout the scriptures. We see it. And there are also times when they, when they fall into idolatry, when they're doing horrible things. And then God allows them to be taken captive. He allows them to lose a few battles, to get their nose bloodied a little bit when they've been disobedient. And so obedience is the key. Obedience to God. We'll look at that later. So in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and naturally so, they didn't have horses. They certainly didn't have iron instruments. They didn't even have swords. They had mattocks, pickaxes, little things with golds with little nails stuck on the end or whatever. You know, they had these primitive kind of instruments. And now they're going against these, this army that's got their act together. You know, it's like bringing a knife to a gun show. They were distressed, and then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And believe me, I've been to Israel three times so far, and I love that land. 
And um, when you, if you do go there and you travel down from Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, you'll notice on that trip all the way down, and there's mountains, ranges, and, the, and the, the Jordan River flowing through the center all the way down. And on each side, you'll notice that there's cliffs and rocks. And for miles and miles and miles, there's places where you could hide in rocks and holes and little things. They're everywhere, folks. They're everywhere, even today. They're everywhere. Down there in the Dead Sea, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, cave, you know, cave four of Qumran, where they found the, the Isaiah Scroll, a complete Isaiah Scroll that predated a thousand years the oldest manuscript they had. And other manuscripts, too. They found them there in, those, in the Dead Sea. But in that area, around Qumran, rocks. I mean, you could take you forever to examine all of them and crawl into them. I would love to do that one day, though. Just go up there and get lost grab a canteen of water, my gun, and go. And just have a, and, 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 and some kind of shovel in a, in a tent and, and maybe some beef jerky, and I'd be happy. But that'd be a lot of fun. But so they, the people are distressed now. They see the Philistines coming, and they're like, we're going to hide out in the rocks. We're going to do whatever we can. And so verse 7, some of the Hebrews, they even cross over the Jordan. So they even go east. If you're looking at a map of Israel, the Jordan River comes right, through, right down the center of it. And then to the east of it, is the, 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 the Gilead, Mount Gilead, and that mountain range there. And so some of the people are even crossing over Jordan and getting out of Israel altogether and going over into the area that we know belonged to the children of Gad. And as for Saul, it says in verse 7, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, noticed trembling. They were trembling because they were scared, and fear is a good thing. Fear is not a bad thing. God gave us that sense of fear to keep us out of trouble, to keep us out of danger. It depends on what you do with that fear. If you let it dominate you, then you got a problem. But we ought not to live completely in fear. But there may be times where you experience fear. You know, if you're walking down the street at night, down on North Clinton Avenue, and you're by yourself, and you see four or five guys coming up kind of quickly behind you, you've got reason to fear. Right? Hopefully you can outrun them. Right? But notice in verse 8, so Saul, he waited seven days there at Gilgal. He waited seven days there. According to the time set by Samuel, notice this time was set by Samuel. Samuel told him actually in chapter 10, verse 8, you remember, we've already gone through this, but Samuel told him, and this was the great test of Saul of his obedience. Remember what, I'll read to you what Samuel said to Saul in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 8. He says, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down. Notice the promise that Samuel said to, to Saul, surely I will come down to you to offer the burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Notice, seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now remember, Samuel's a Levite. He is the only one who should be doing any sacrificing, right? He's the only one because he's a Levite. That's what he did from his youth up until that time. He would be part of the, of the, of the temple uh, rites of, of, of slaughtering the animals and emptying their blood and going through that whole thing. But not, Sam, not Saul. Saul was from Benjamin. He was, a ben, he was from Benjamin. Samuel was a Levite. So he tells Saul to go down to Gilgal and wait for me seven days. Remember that. So verse 9, he says, So Saul said, um, you know, uh, 
Let me reread verse 8. It says, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel, notice, did not come to Gilgal like he promised, although he will come. And the people were scattered from him. So now his army of 2,000 people, they're they're sitting there, they're waiting for Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifice and, and, and pray to God and see what the direction is for this, you know, this battle that they're about to get into, which is very smart, by the way. So now his men are getting really scared, and some of them are starting to desert Saul. And Saul's sitting there, and it's like the seventh day, and he's like, okay, Samuel, where are you at? Where are you? Where are you? And so verse 9, Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And then notice what happened. He offered the burnt offering. Saul was acting like an autocrat. Instead of just being the king, now he was over usurping his authority and going into the priesthood as well. The priests were supposed to do that, not the king. The kings were from Judah, except he was from Benjamin. Long story there, but he wasn't supposed to do that. But he takes it upon himself to do it. And notice in verse 10, Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So in the 11th hour, you can see this. Have you been in the 11th hour of something where you've had to wait? Somebody said, I'll meet you here at a certain time. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You're looking at your clock and you're like, oh my gosh, come on, hurry up. And then they show up right at the last second, the last minute, and you're like, oh. Have you ever been brought to the 11th hour in anything, anything that's been important to you? Have you been brought to the 11th hour? Right at the point when you're about ready to give up, you're about ready to throw in the towel and say, I've had it, I'm done. Have you been to that place? I've been there a number of times, and I know that I'll be there again and again. Sometimes the Lord will bring us to the 11th hour before he brings deliverance or answers prayer. And it's not because he's cruel, but rather in the process of that, what happens to our faith? It grows. It grows. And that process of our faith growing is so important to God. And it's really good for us. We don't like when we go through it. Nobody likes to go through that. Nobody likes to go through times of of trial and to go through times of testing But there's an old adage that says that a faith that cannot be uh, tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And Saul needed to be tested as a new king. He needed to go through. His metal had to be tested. And one thing with the Lord, the ends never justify the means. Have you heard that phrase? The ends never justify the means? Certainly there's a way to get something done, but the process of getting from from here to that whatever end is, the process is important. If you can get get to this point by cheating or lying or doing something else, and then you do it another way, and it's doing it the right way, but it might take you a little longer. See, God is more concerned about how you go about the end rather than just getting to the end. You get my point. Do you get my point? There are all kinds of ways to get to the end of something, but it's the process in between that God is in. That's the part that we are responsible for, and that's the thing that he's looking for. He's not so much concerned about the end. He can get you to the end, but we got to do it his way and in his time. See, God is more concerned, again, just uh, about the process and the, than the, and the journey 
as he is the end result. And I believe the Lord especially likes to deliver when we are boxed in and he is our only hope. There are no other resources. We've burned all of our resources. We've gone through all of our resources. Our credit cards are all maxed out. Our line of credit is all maxed out. And then we find ourselves in a place where we got to really trust in God. And I've been in situations like that where God did do something amazing a number of times, and maybe you've had the same things happen to you, but do you trust him? Or do you trust your, 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 your accounts and the things that you have set up? Do you trust in your credit line more than you trust in God? Do you trust in your credit card more than you trust in God? I would encourage you that when something breaks, instead of running to the creditors, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? These kinds of things happen all the time, and then somebody in the body has an extra dryer or, or washer and dryer that they're no longer using, and it just so happens that it's right around the time when yours broke. Hmm. I wonder if God's in that. Nah, probably just a coincidence. Of course he's in it. These kind of things happen all the time. It's important. And sometimes God, he observes us putting all of our hopes in our other resources and in our own ingenuity or resourcefulness before he finally says, okay, now that you're done doing what you can do, watch what I can do. You see, God is a jealous God. And jealousy is, from a husband and wife, jealousy can be bad, but jealousy from God's perspective is good because God is good. And it says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, God says, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Do you hear that? He's a jealous God. He's not going to give his praise, his honor to anyone. He alone deserves the credit. And that's why I love it when we, as, as Christians, when we come to the end of ourselves, and we find ourselves, we kind of blocked in, and we don't see any way out, and we just cry out to God, and then he delivers us. And what are you going to do with that? Are you going to go around and tell everybody, hey, you know what, uh, because you know, I'm a real smooth guy and I knew this was going to happen, so I, I built up a hedge fund and whatever, and I, I bailed myself out. Or are you going to say, you know what, I was, completely, I was completely in a mess. I was completely consumed in this issue, and God alone got me out of it. He alone got me out of it. And people are like, what? Yeah, God got me out of it. I know each one of you have stories of some kind. But these things are important, folks. This is where our relationship with Christ is so important. Put him on the front always. And you honor him when you do that. We honor him when we put him first in all things. When we put him last, it doesn't really honor him. Can he still deliver and will he? Yeah, he, he can and he does. Because he loves you. He's not angry with you. But there is a process that we have to go through, and it usually isn't real easy sometimes. In fact, sometimes it can be downright excruciating, but he can be with you in it if you choose to let him. And here's an example. Remember when the Israelites, when they fled out of Egypt, there they go. They, they leave Ramesses or wherever they're at, and they, and they go across. They finally, you know, they spend 40, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, ba- I'm going too far here. As they leave Egypt, Pharaoh decides to go after them anyway. And so the children of Israel, they are there, right there by the Red Sea, and they've got mountains on each side, and they've got only one way to go. And Pharaoh and his armies are coming down on them. They can see the cloud coming, and you remember what God did. They, had, they were hemmed in by the desert, the Bible says. There was no way out. They were going to get clobbered with these chariots from Egypt, and they were going to smoke these Israelites. And they were going to die, and they knew it, and they were shaking in their boots. And God told um, Moses, says, Moses, um, 
take that rod that's in your hand and I want you to hold it out over opposite the Red Sea. And what did Moses do? Did he argue with God? <laughs> Are you kidding me, God? Can't you just turn this thing into a, a you know, an M, you know, uh, one of those submachine guns on a turret with all the unlimited number of bullets and I'll just take these guys out? He's like, no, just take your rod that's in your hand and rise it up. And what happened? He parted the Red Sea. Water on each side, and they crossed over on dry land. Figure that one out. God got them through, and the, the Egyptians followed them, and he covered them and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. There's actually remnants of that on the sea. They found remnants of the chariot wheels that are encrusted with barnacles. I've seen them. Notice in verse 11, though, it says, Now Samuel said, What have you done? What have you done by offering the sacrifices, Saul? That, that you're a Benjamite, you ought to know better. Uh, the king doesn't offer a sacrifice. That is specifically the job of the Levites. And so Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw, notice, underline that, when I saw, because Saul is the kind of guy who really operates on more what he sees rather than by faith. And see, that's a dangerous thing. If, you're, if everything you believe is just by what you see, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. Then there's no faith, because if you can see it, why do you have faith? But what does it say in Hebrews? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The evidence of things not yet seen. It almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because if you have evidence, that means you have physical evidence. But this is saying faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's, it's like having the evidence before you see it yet. You can't explain that to anybody. But when you operate in faith and you see it come to pass and you see what God does, then you're like, oh, wow, that's really something. And it encourages your faith, doesn't it? So Saul was more of a man of sight than a man of faith. Unlike his son, Jonathan, Jonathan was more of a man of faith than he was. But notice in this uh, verse 11, we see three different excuses that Saul gives in his disobedience. Number one is that he saw the people scattering from him as a king. That's pretty dis, uh, un, uh, disheartening to see the 2,000 men that were around you, and all of a sudden they're getting discouraged, and they're starting to go home. And he's like, i got to do something. i got to do something. And then number two, Samuel didn't come when the days were appointed. But he did come, didn't he? He came at the 11th hour. He came on the seventh day. And number three, the Philistines were gathered at Michmash, so now they're starting to get a little concerned. You'll learn in Saul's life that he very rarely owns up to anything. He's always blaming somebody else for his problems. He's always looking at somebody else. He's always blaming somebody else. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 15. But notice in verse 12 here, it says, Then I said, the Philistines, now Saul is speaking here. He said, I saw the Philistines. Now, now they will come down on me at Gilgal and, have not made and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled. Underline that word. I felt compelled. Because you're going to see really where Saul is. He's really showing his true colors now. And he says, And therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Excuses, excuses, excuses. That was Saul of Benjamin. A couple of things to look at here. We know that Saul, because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, we already looked at this briefly, he had no business making sacrifices. 
In Numbers chapter 18, verse 6, it says, Behold, God speaking, says, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. So Levi is one of the other 12 tribes of the children of Israel. He says, I have taken them. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons, you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. And I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. That's how serious God took it. They were supposed to do all those things, the sacrifices, taking care of the tabernacle, tearing it down, rearing it up when they would, when they would move around. It was all for them. That was their service to the Lord. Saul had no business doing that. We'll see another king in 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll see another king by the name of Jeroboam who did the very same thing. He was a king of the northern 12 tribe or northern 10 tribes. And what did he do? He made altars in Bethel and in Dan and he made sacrifices to the abominations, to the idols of the land. He was one of the, probably one of the most wicked kings in Israel that Israel ever had, Jeroboam. He did the very same thing that Saul did. Notice that he said at the bottom of that verse, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. The situation, rather than um, uh, obedience to God, uh, the situation was what was motivating Saul rather than a motivation to be obedient to God. He was sizing it up in the natural, and that was what was propelling him, compelling him, rather than obedience to God. A situation like, uh, excuse me, situations like this have a tendency to expose our impatience, don't they? And our disobedience. It was a perfect storm for Saul. He was in a pinch, and he was sizing it up in the natural. This is what I call a crisis of obedience. Have you ever been in a crisis of obedience? I've had several of these in my life, perhaps you have too, where situations arise quickly that prove where your heart and your faith really is at. You're, you're, you're forced to respond quickly to something, and the devil loves to do that. He loves to make you think that you've got to do it now. If you don't do it now, you're going to miss out on this opportunity. It'll never come back. And you know, sometimes there are situations like that where a situation will come up, and it may be, happen only once. But do you believe that if God wants something for you at that time, if he really, if it's his will for you, do you think he's going to give you another opportunity to get it? I do. It's always dangerous when you act on the fly and and feel pressured to do something. You're like, okay, okay, let's just do it this way. And then you do it and you find out you've made a grave error. Never make decisions like that. When possible, get away and, and get some time to think about it. Pray about it before you make decisions, especially big ones. Little ones too, but the big ones are the ones that are even the most costly because they affect you quicker sometimes. And so it's a, it's a, it's a crisis of obedience for Saul here because now he was told to wait. All he had to do was wait. And yes, he was taken to the 11th hour. But he, had to, he should have been obedient to God. And like I said, God will often bring you to the end, right to the 11th hour, and then he shows up. Will you, will you be patient and wait for him? 
Again, that's where we grow. That's where I grow. I very rarely grow when things are going really well. I I don't grow as a Christian when things are going my way all the time and everything is working really wonderfully and everything is just going smoothly. No, it's usually when when things are falling apart, when things are beyond my control. Those are the times that I find that I'm really drawing closer to the Lord. I'm more dependent on him because I'm aware of my need. When I've got everything together, I, don't, I, 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 I may think to myself and fool myself that I really don't need God. When actuality, I need him more then than any other time, but especially when I'm going through a difficulty, I need him. I need to rely on him. Rely on him. And whether directly or indirectly, the Lord allows these things to occur in our lives that we may be tried, not to destroy us, Not to destroy us, but rather to grow us and mature us in the faith. See, God does not want to destroy you. He wants to bless you. But sometimes in the trial of obedience, you're going to find that it's going to challenge you right to the core. You're going to find that it's going to be something that's going to go against your emotions, your feelings. Your feelings, your emotions are one of the most, uh, the couple of things that the devil loves to manipulate to get people to do things. Your feelings, your emotions, I hate them. Most of the time, they lead me astray. Do you have a temper? You're led by your emotions. Do you do things on the fly because of pressure? You're, you're being led by something else. It's times like that, brothers and sisters, that we've got to be really careful. We must be really careful. What does it say in James? Remember, James was a half-brother of Jesus, half-brother, and what did he write in chapter 1, verse 2? He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it do? It produces patience. But then he goes on and he says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so there is a, that there is a testing of our faith. See, God knows what my faith is. He knows everything about me. I don't even know myself. Do you know yourself completely? Do you know how you're going to respond in a certain situation all the time? You get caught by surprise, don't you? And then you're surprised that you acted a certain way. That means that I really don't know myself. But God knows me. He knows you perfectly. And he allows things in our life to show us He already knows, but we need to know. I need to know really where I stand, and there's no other way around it. There's not like Cliff's Notes where I can just look up a quick answer and say, oh, I need to do this. Sometimes i got to wait on him. Sometimes i got to go through something so that God can show me where my faith really is. Where is it when I find out that I've got a tumor growing in my stomach, which happened a couple Mays ago? What do I do? Do I call the doctors and, and, and you know, freak out and get on my face and, and cry and whimper and everything? And, and I did all those things. But there comes a, a peace at some point after you go through the, the what-ifs, which is very normal and very natural. And then, then you come to a point where like, okay, God, this is, this is you, you knew about this. It was a shock to me. But he allows these things to prove us, to prove us. He already knows the result, but I need to know where I stand in my faith. Because I can boast a big game. I, I don't really boast a big game, but I could. And then I find that I really don't have the substance behind it to back it up. 
But see, God, when he reveals things, all of a sudden it shows you really where you're at. And usually I don't find out those things, but in a crisis. And we're going to see Saul failing in God's last test for him. We're going to see this in chapter 15 when we get to it. He's going to fail one time more, and God's going to say, okay, that's it. You had a couple of opportunities here, Saul, and each time you're relying on your arm or your flesh, you're not relying upon me, you're not listening to me, you're not being obedient, and as a king of my people, you have to be different. And God gave him a number of opportunities. And finally, God had to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to someone better than him, and that was David. David. But obedience is very rarely easy, or it's, bare, it's very rarely an easy way. Obedience often will cost you something. And isn't that what worship is? When you're obedient, you're actually going through something difficult, and, you're, and in a sense, that's worship. Because worship costs something. If it doesn't cost me something, it's not worship. That's why when God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and take him on top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. To me, God says, and Abraham knew that that was wrong, that that's what the nations around them did. The Canaanites, those are the awful things that they did, human sacrifice. Abraham knew that that was wrong, but yet he trusted God. He trusted the Lord. He knew that God was going to do something because he told the servant when he and his son went up to the mountain, he says, me and the lad are going to come back. We're going to come back. I think Abraham knew in his heart that he was going to go through this and God was going to do something. He was either going to raise him from the dead after he's plunged that knife into his heart or God was going to intervene. And of course, God intervened because God knew that that was not the right thing either, but he trusted God. Isn't that amazing that he knew the voice of God well enough to know that it was really him and not just some demon masquerading as God? Do you know the voice of God? Do you know that still small voice? You know how you find out? When you hear that still small voice, you be obedient to it and make sure that what you're doing is biblical. And then when you follow through and you're obedient and you see the result of that and you're like, oh, wow, Lord, that was really something. I would never have done that. And he's like, I know. But because you did, that person got saved today. I asked you to go over and just tell that person, just go over there. And this has happened. You go over and you tell that person that I love them. And you just have this stirring in your heart and you're like, God, this is really awkward. I've never done anything. He said, just go do it. And then you follow through on it. You go over and you say, you know what? This is going to sound crazy, but the Lord just wanted me to tell you that God loves you, that Jesus loves you, and that person falls apart. <laughs> and then you find out that that person was about ready to end their life, and they, they said, God, if you're real, then do something. Tell me that you love me today somehow. Show me that you love me. And then somebody comes along and says, Jesus loves you. Because you were obedient, now that person's faith has been encouraged. Obedience. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, it says that Jesus, Paul speaking, he said that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He didn't need to learn anything, but he learned obedience. He was obedient to his father by the things that he suffered. And we're all learning to be more obedient when we suffer. I don't learn a lot when I'm, everything's going well, but sometimes when I suffer, those are the things, those are the times that I really learn. The 
the best lessons in life that I've learned have always been through heartache and pain. Is that true for you too? For most of my lessons, the greatest lessons have been through great trial. They've been through difficulty, heartbreak, where it just I felt like I was being ground to powder. Have you ever felt that way? And that's, the way, that's often the way God, he does his greatest work. And he said, I felt compelled. He felt restrained. And remember that God is never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Be careful of when you're being forced or feeling compelled to do anything. In Proverbs 21, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those, to, those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. And I can attest to that. I've done things quickly and found out that was just the wrong thing to do. Another Proverb 29, verse 20 says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And I can attest to that, too, because I've made a fool of myself by being hasty. God is never in a hurry. Trust him in the process. Trust him in the time. And if Saul was obedient to the Lord, even though he knew these Philistines could be coming, and if he was just willing to be obedient and to stop and just wait, God can take care of anything else. He could have. But again, we, get looked, we look at the physical and we get frightened and we respond in the flesh. And God is just saying, Saul, just wait. And this is a big thing for him. This is something he had to learn. And he didn't learn it. He didn't learn it here. He's going to do it again in chapter 14 and 15. But see, God knows our hearts, and he's very concerned about obedience, and he's very concerned about purity and holiness. And you can't do it in your own strength, right? You need the Spirit of God in you. You need to ask Christ into your heart to be able to even do these things. I can't do it myself. We've proven that. Haven't you proven it? I I proved... You know, up to my point right now, as I'm standing before you, I've proved, and I'm continuing to prove, that what God says is true. And so Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept by the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And that may seem harsh, but see, Saul has already made a few mistakes prior to this. He's not listening. And a man who is not governed by God is a man who is not very useful in the hand of God, much less being a leader over his people. Now, other kings made their mistakes, so did David. But when David made his mistakes, David cracked like an egg. He did some really horrible things when we get to his life, and you know those things. He committed adultery and even murder. But then David broke, and he was never the same again. He never turned to that ever, ever again, and his heart was completely broken and contrite and broken, and God would not turn him away. God forgave him, and he became one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. But he suffered consequences. He learned obedience by the things, through the things that he suffered. And David was a man, and notice in verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. We know that that's David. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You haven't been obedient, Saul, and there's somebody else who is going to be obedient to me, and he is going to be the man after my own heart. Even though he's not a perfect man, none of us are perfect, but David had a, had a wonderful heart, and he was an obedient man. He was committed to God. He was surrendered to God, which is what we need to be. Are you a man or woman after God's own heart? 
you remember the days if you have a spouse? Do you remember the days when you wooed them? When you courted them and you'd do anything for them? You were so happy to see them? How's that today? Do you still feel the same way? And I don't say that to make you feel awkward or bad. But let's work on those relationships with our spouses, with our family members, and especially with God. Are you pursuing the Lord in the same way? Are you after his heart? Do you really want to know his heart? If not, why not? Isn't he good? Isn't he good? Is, didn't the Bible say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Is he good? If he's, if he's not good, then find somebody else. But I can tell you, you're going to be looking for a long time, and you're not going to find him. The search is over when you come to Jesus. Can you say amen to that? My search is over. There's no one who claimed to be God in the flesh. He alone is God in the flesh. You've got nothing to lose but everything to gain, and I mean everything to gain. And notice at the end of verse 14, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded, there are consequences for disobedience. We don't have time tonight, but I would encourage you to read uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. These are the blessings and the cursings where God says, if you do this, then I will do this. These are very conditional promises. It'll come to pass that if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then there's a great list of those. You can read those in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 25. And we're going to see that Saul, if you read through that list tonight, you're going to see that Saul encountered many of those things at the end of his life. The enemy did overtake him. In fact, the Philistines shot him with an arrow, and then he had to ask his armor bearer to finish him off before they came and tortured him. And the poor guy, he didn't even have the guts to kill his, his, his king, which I don't blame him. Instead, Saul fell on the sword. He took the sword himself, and once the armor bearer saw that, he's like, well, I'm, I'm toast. <laughs> if he's dead, how can I go back? My job is to protect him. So he fell on the sword, on his own sword. He died. But that's what happened. Saul was disobedient. See, God wants us to be obedient children. And not only that, but all of his sons, many of his sons would be killed. In the same day, Jonathan, his son, would be killed. A wonderful man, a, a very great friend of David. David and Jonathan had this wonderful relationship. We're going to see that as we go through the, of Samuel. They really loved each other. I mean, these were like two guys that were like real men, but they loved each other. It was a, it was a brotherhood. It was a bond. That, that it, was, it, was clo- it was so tight. And I tell you, when you have a relationship like that with any person on the planet, it's amazing. Very rare is it to have that kind of bond, and David and Jonathan had that bond. They truly loved each other. And you can say that with a, impurity, They loved each other. They would do anything for each other. David would take the sword for Jonathan, and Jonathan would gladly take the sword for David. They had that kind of a friendship. That's that's what real friendship is. Greater love has no man than this, than that a a man lays down his life for his his friends. Verse 15, it says, Then Samuel rose, and he went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So he goes up from that place of Gilgal. He goes back to his hometown in Gibeah. And Saul numbered the people present with him, and they were about 600 men. So he went literally from 2,000 men surrounding him. Now he's got 600 guys. Everybody else abandoned him because they were scared to death of what the Philistines were going to do. 
So verse 17, then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned on the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shuel. Another company turned to the road of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And so basically, you know, it, now the Philistines are in Mishmash, where Saul used to be, and you can see they're gaining ground, and so there's even a greater fear, isn't there? Because Saul was, if you remember, in the first part of the chapter, he and his 2,000 men were in mishmash. And who's there now? The Philistines. And now they're sending out bands of raiders, making things even worse. And notice what it says. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. The Philistines, they had this great skill with iron, and they were able to make tools, and that's why they could make iron chariots, they could make swords and spears, and it was an art. And the Philistines kept that art from the, the Israelites. And so the Israelites were kind of dependent upon them. And it goes on and it says, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle, these farm tools that they're going to use, and they would, the Philistines would charge them an exorbitant amount to, 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 to sharpen these things, but then they wouldn't really do a great job because they knew that they were probably going to be used against them. See, that's a funny thing about war, and, and back in these times, there was an honor. During normal peacetime, they would go down and get their, they would pay them. It was a good income for the Philistines, but the Philistines weren't worried, but you know why? Because they had all the best stuff. They had the swords, and they made their own stuff. They weren't worried about these farmers coming with their, their pickaxes and stuff like that. They're going, yeah, I'll, I'll sharpen it for you. What are you going to do with that? It's going to cost you an arm and a leg, though, pal. And that's what happened. So in the charge for sharpening, sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, which was an absorbent amount to do that. The mattocks, the forks, the axes to set the points on, on it. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. So all the people didn't have anything. They had these pickaxes, little primitive farming tools to, to fight the battle with. But notice it says, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. You know, I don't know what to think about that. I mean, naturally a king and his son would want to protect themselves with the very best. I, I can, there's a part of me that can get that. But there's a part of me also that says if they had at least one for each of them, maybe they should have given some to the other guys, you know, maybe some of the best warriors. But then it goes on and finishes in verse 23, and we'll stop here. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And so um, next week we'll look at uh, chapter 14 where we really see Jonathan really shining in his faith and really um, just really outshining his father who was really a coward. And Jonathan was a man of faith. But again, tonight was about obedience. And just ask yourself that question. Am I, am I an obedient son or woman of God? Do I make excuses for my shortcomings? Or am I, am I going to be obedient? There are blessings for obedience, folks. There really is. Being obedient to God is the best thing. And I'm learning that even if it takes time, even if it's not on my timetable, if I'm obedient to God, the way is peaceable, and I always can put my head on the pillow at night and know that God is in control, and I don't need to worry about it. God is in control. Is God in control of your life? Do you know that he's in control of your life? Do you find yourself frustrated and feeling like you've got to do something now in haste? Hey, listen, whenever you feel that way, be obedient. Take some time and pray and wait 
and wait and don't just rush to quick decisions. Trust in the Lord. You can trust in him, by the way. Do you know that he's trustworthy? Is there anybody else who's really trustworthy? Do you believe that God knows the end from the beginning? I would encourage you tonight to read Psalm 139. It talks about God's omniscience, the fact that he can't learn anything. He knows all things. And he's in every place at one time. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. He knows exactly what's going to happen in your life and in my life. Tomorrow at 1 p.m., he knows exactly what you're going to be doing. He could whisper it in your ear if he wanted to. And he could say, you know what? You're going to be choking on a chicken nugget tomorrow at 1 o'clock. But you're going to be fine because a, a young lady from Calvary Chapel of Webster is going to come and she's going to do the Heimlich maneuver and it's going to be out. You're going to be fine. But that's what's going to happen. He knows. Do you trust him? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, as we, as we read this chapter and we see the, um, the life of Saul and just his... Uh, his disobedience, Lord, we see his lack of faith. And, and Father, lest we get too hard on Saul, God, we also need to look at our own lives and examine our own selves tonight. And Lord, help us to take those, take stock of what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, may we run to you. May we trust you. And Lord, may you give us an even greater faith than what we have currently, Father, and help us to grow day by day that we would know of your love for us. And so we thank you, Lord. I pray that you get us all home safely tonight. I pray that, God, you would do these things in us, Lord. We know that we can't do them of ourselves, Lord. We have to rely upon you. Would you please help us, Lord? We are needy. We need you badly, God. Please touch our lives and get us home safely. And bless our day tomorrow, Father, according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.